Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We're in a series in the book of Mark, today's part 34. We spoke last week of the soldiers confronting Yeshua in the Garden of Gethsemane. Today, we see how Judas approached him and betrayed him with a kiss. So return with me to Mark 14, beginning in verse 43. Mark 14, 43. Just as he, Yeshua, was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the, the, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Yeshua, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Yeshua and arrested him. Then one of those standing near uh, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Yeshua, that you've come out at me with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Yeshua. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. The term, kiss of death, comes into our vocabulary from this incident. Psalm 2 instructs us to kiss the sun. But Proverbs 27.6 warns us that deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Indeed, in the parallel passage in Luke 22:48, Yeshua says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? The dictionary defines kiss of death as to become intimate with something that subsequently causes your destruction. But ironically, it's not Yeshua's mission that's destroyed, is it? His mission isn't destroyed by Judas's betrayal. Yeshua's plans aren't destroyed. It's Judas who's destroyed. But Judas is not destroyed because he's intimate with Yeshua, because intimacy with Yeshua is the kiss of life, not the kiss of death. Rather, it's the fact that Judas is intimate with the swords and the clubs. Yeshua makes a big deal of this. In Mark 14, 48, it says, am I leading, Yeshua says, am I leading a rebellion? That you've come out with that, me with swords and clubs to capture me? So Yeshua's having a problem with swords. As I mentioned last week, this is not about pacifism. Yeshua is not a pacifist. Uh, he told them to bring swords. He, cut, he cast out the money changers. But this is a special situation. He tells his disciples not to try to prevent his arrest and crucifixion because this is what he came to do, to drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we need to read this statement in context. The word sword in the Bible is used broadly. What we have in this passage is a clash between two kingdoms, two administrations of reality, two sets of priorities and values. We have what I'll call the right side up kingdom of this world, uh, the one that operates by this world's standards, and, and also the upside down kingdom of Yeshua that's totally countercultural. Uh, so we have th uh, three things here we'll put on the overhead. Uh, number one, Judas shows us the right side up kingdom of this world. Number two, Peter shows us the difficulty of living in Yeshua's upside down kingdom. And number three, 
the young man at the end of the passage gives us some insights on how we can get the power to live the Messiah's kingdom. So first, Judas and the kingdom of this world. From the world's perspective, uh, this world is the right side up kingdom. You know, Judas shows up with clubs and swords and an attachment of up 200 Roman soldiers. He expects armed, armed resistance or he wouldn't be coming like this. Yeshua says, what in the world are you doing coming to me with swords? This shows you don't understand me at all. The sword in the scriptures represent more than just the ability to kill. For example, in, in Romans 13, we're told that governments have the power of the sword. And this doesn't just mean they have the power to execute people. It means they have the power to compel behavior. The sword in the Bible represents the power to compel behavior. There's a lot of ways to do that. Money can make people do what they don't want to do. Military power, financial power, political power. These are all ways of making people do what they don't want to do, but what you want them to do. It's the power to compel behavior. That's what the sword represents. And traditionally, kingdoms are always associated with the sword. Now, what's a kingdom? Throughout the Gospels, Yeshua has been talking about the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world. Well, what is a kingdom? A kingdom is an administration. And an administration is a way of ordering things for how things get done. So, for example, when a new coach comes to a team, there's a new administration. When a new president comes to a government, or when a new head comes to a department, these are new administrations. And new administrations means things are different now. There's a new order to the way things get done. But what defines one administration from another is a list, a list of values. What things were the top of the list, what things were the middle of the list, what things were at the bottom. At the top of the list are the really real things, things that, that really count. In the middle are the things that aren't quite as important. At the bottom are things we're indifferent to, or we disdain, uh, or avoid. And that's what makes a difference for how things get done and what gets done. You reorder your loves. You reorder your values. One coach, one president, one department head has a different set of values and priorities from the next. When a different leader comes in, there's a new administration. The old order of things goes away. The new order comes in with a new list of values and priorities. Now, in the kingdom of this world, the sword is at the top. Military might, political power, financial power, things that can compel behavior. That's what's at the top. That's what really matters in the kingdoms of this world. And Judas, by showing up with swords and clubs and soldiers, and even the subterfuge of the kiss itself, shows he's totally of this world, this world's mentality. Why didn't Judas just say, there's the guy, arrest him? What's the kiss for? What's all the subterfuge? He expected that Yeshua would be taking up the sword because Yeshua talked about the kingdom of God. And anyone who's ever talked about a kingdom has always used money, politics, military might in order to get into power. So that's what Judas was expecting. The kingdom of this world always says at the top is the sword. It's money, military might, political power. Here's a great example of the thinking and the mindset of the kingdom of this world. Uh, the um, New York Times recently did a series of articles on Pentecostalism. 
And Pentecostalism is not only the fastest growing religion in the world, it's also the fastest growing movement of any kind in the world. And so the New York Times decided to do a series of articles on Pentecostal Christianity. And there'd be accounts of how, these great accounts of, of, how, of how people's lives uh, were changed, how they had joy now, how they were brought out of addictive behavior, how they were in loving communities now. People were getting out of jail, uh, graduating from high school. But at the very end of the articles, the secular reporter asked the pastor, you know, all this stuff, uh, all this changed lives, that, that sounds great. But let me ask you the really important question. Do you think, in the end, your people will be more likely to vote Republican or Democrat? The reporter went on to say, you know, joy, that's wonderful. And freedom from addiction, that's great. And community, that, that, that's awesome. But when it really comes down to it, the only reason the people who read the New York Times would be at all interested in any of this uh, is if it made these born-again types in your church uh, more likely to vote Democrat or Republican. In essence, he's saying, you know, joy, peace, love, that's very nice. But those things are down our list of priorities. What's at the top of our list, what really matters, what's really real, what really counts in this world, is how will this Pentecostal movement affect the vote? That's what really matters to our readers. This is the administration of reality of the kingdom of this world. And Yeshua rejects it. Instead, we read this in Mark 14, 48. Am I leading a rebellion, said Yeshua? That you've come out, out, out with swords and clubs to capture me? The word rebellion here in verse 48 means, means a guerrilla warrior uh, who's using violent means, the sword, to overthrow the existing order of things and to bring in a new order. So Yeshua is saying, do you think I'm a terrorist? Do you think I'm an insurgent or, or, or an insurrectionist? Do you think I'm a, rev a revolutionary? If you come at me with swords and clubs, it shows you don't understand me at all. Now, is Yeshua saying you don't understand me because I'm not trying to change the, the order of things? I just want to give you love and peace and, and groovy vibes? <laughs> no, not at all. He couldn't be saying that because he says the opposite of that in the rest of the Gospels. So when Yeshua says, am I a revolutionary, that you come at me with swords, he's not saying that he's not a revolutionary. On the overhead, here's what he's trying to say. He's saying, you don't understand me if you think swords and clubs will stop me. Yeshua is saying, I am leading a revolution, but a much greater revolution than you've ever seen in history. Because all other revolutions basically keep the same old things on top. And so they're not real revolutions. What you always have on top is money and power and politics. You simply change the people who are in power. Every, every, every revolution brings a new set of people in power. And it's almost always worse, by the way, than the corrupt prior regime that they threw out. But Yeshua says, I don't just want a new set of people in power. I want a new kind of power in power. I don't just want a new set of people in power. I want a real revolution. I want a real new kingdom, a totally different administration of reality. All other revolutions have just been rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, just fine-tuning the same old thing with new faces in charge. Every other revolution, Yeshua says, just puts a new set of people in power, 
but I want to put a new kind of power in power. I want to really change things, he says. I'm a revolutionary, yes, and you can arrest me with swords, but you can't stop me with swords because I'm not about the sword at all. So Judas, you just don't get it. You don't understand me at all because you only understand the kingdom of this world, which is based on money and power and politics. So on the overhead, uh, that's number one, the right-side-up kingdom of this world, exemplified by Judas. Now, number two, what does Yeshua put in this place? The upside-down kingdom of God. Yeshua's been talking about the kingdom of God all throughout the book of Mark, all throughout all four Gospels. What is the Malkut HaShemayim, the kingdom of God? The Messianic kingdom of God is a new administration brought in by Yeshua, and it's already begun to change things because it's partially here, within us. This is the Torah principle known as here now, but not yet. The kingdom of God has broken into this world uh, 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 with the death and resurrection of Yeshua, and it's already changing the order of things. But it's a difficult kingdom to live in. As Peter shows us, when he falls back into the kingdom of this world, he cuts off the, the, the uh, high priest's servant's ear. Now, of all the places where Yeshua contrasts the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of this world, the most succinct place is, is in the shorter version of the Sermon on the Mount in Luke 6. And in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, Yeshua makes a list. As we discussed, administrations and kingdoms can be described uh, through a list of priorities that they establish. What things were at the top, what things were at the bottom. That's what reorders reality. So listen to these two lists in Luke 6, beginning in verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you'll be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you'll laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and insult you because of the Son of Man. But woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you'll go hungry. Woe to you who laugh, for you'll mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that's how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Bible commentator Michael Wilcock, he says this, and we'll put it on the overhead. He says, in the life of God's people then, there'll be a remarkable reversal of values. The believers will prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world calls desirable. That's a pretty good summary of Luke 6. The things the world puts at the bottom of the list or at the top of the, of the list for the kingdom of God. The things that are prized by the kingdom of God are pitied by the world. And the things that are suspected by the kingdom of God uh, are desired by the kingdom of this world. So on the overhead, what's on the top of the list for the kingdom of this world? Yeshua, Yeshua went right down the list in, in Luke 6. Money, power, success, comfort, recognition, reputation. Now on the overhead, what's at the top of the kingdom of God's list? What is called blessed? What does, Yeshua, what does the kingdom of God prize and value? What does Yeshua say in Luke 6? Weakness, poverty, suffering, weeping, rejection, exclusion, marginalization. That's what the kingdom of God prizes. That's at the top of Yeshua's list. And when you hear these two lists, 
Now you know why the kingdom of this world is called the right-side-up kingdom, and the kingdom of God is called the upside-down kingdom. Because the world seems right-side-up. It seems natural. Yeshua's approach, it seems unnatural, impossible. The world's approach seems more natural biologically. Whoever heard of the survival of the weakest, or survival of the sacrificers, or survival of the poor? It doesn't work that way. It, it seems unnatural biologically, but it's also unnatural psychologically. When you hear Yeshua say the kingdom of God values weakness, poverty, suffering, and rejection, our natural reaction is to say, that's masochism. Uh, that's psychologically unhealthy. Who can live like that? That's not right. Uh, it's impossible to live like that. And guess what? It kind of is impossible to live like that. And you might see an example of how unnatural this is, how difficult it is to live in, in Yeshua's kingdom and, and his administration of reality. Look at Mark 14, 47 in our passage. Then one of those standing drew near, uh, one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. If you were here last week where we looked at the parallel passage in the book of John, we're told that this was Peter. No surprise there. Now, Peter knows about the kingdom of God. He's directly heard Yeshua teach on it for three and a half years. But when push comes to shove, what are his instincts? What's his automatic reaction to conflict and opposition? Get out the sword. Because the kingdom of this world says if you want influence and power and success, put yourself ahead of others. You take the power. You make them do what you want them to do. That's, that's the way to get influence. That's the way to change things. Put yourself ahead of them. But Yeshua says to Peter, the scriptures must be fulfilled. What scriptures? The ones Yeshua has been quoting and referring to all throughout the book of Mark. Yeshua says to Peter, and he says to all of us, my kingdom is not of this world. It's completely different. I'm going to change things and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to put others ahead of myself. In contrast, the way the world changes things is you put yourself ahead of others. You get the power. You get the money. You, you get the recognition. You get the status. On the overhead, though, but Yeshua says, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to put myself below others. I'm going to put them ahead of me. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to serve. I'm not going to repay evil with evil, but I'm going to overcome evil with good. I'm going to give up power. I'm going to give up my wealth. I'm going to give up my reputation. I'm going to give up my life. It's, I'm, going to, I'm going to give it all up, and that's how I'm going to change this world. My revolution is the first real revolution. Now he did it. Yeshua's death and resurrection accomplished this and enabled the kingdom of God to break through into our lives, even though it's not here yet in its fullness. Yeshua has changed the world in amazing ways, without a sword, without an army. But it's still an incredibly difficult kingdom to live in. And these two points, number one, Yeshua really has changed the world, uh, but number two, it's really tough to live uh, in his program, this is powerfully illustrated in this account written by Professor John Somerville, a professor of history at the University of Florida. 
He says over the years, uh, he's done a thought experiment with his secular students. He says that secular students are typically very grumpy and antagonistic toward Yeshua faith. But he says they have no idea how utterly, how completely indebted to Messianic Yeshua faith they are for the way they think. And in order to show them how much Christianity, how much Messianic Judaism has changed the world, including them, he gives them this little thought experiment. He explains to them that the values of the Anglo-Saxons uh, and all the Northern European tribes were the values associated with the concept of honor, earning and insisting upon respect from others. And the value of the Christian monks who went out to convert these Northern European tribes from 500 to 1500 AD was the value of charity, of wanting the best for others. These were two completely different and opposing ethical systems. And to show how radically Yeshua faith has changed uh, things, imagine you see a little old lady walking down the street at night carrying a great big purse. She's incredibly little uh, and very old, and it'd be extremely easy just to knock her over and grab the purse. But you don't. Why not? There are two primary answers, he says. The answer of the shame culture, and before Christianity came, virtually all cultures in the world were shame and honor cultures. The answer of the shame and honor culture is you don't knock the little old lady over and steal her purse because that would make you a despicable person, not worthy of respect. People would despise you for picking on the weak, and you despise yourself for picking on the weak. You shouldn't pick on the weak because that's not strong. Uh, and there's no way you can live in that society unless people respect you. And people respect strength and honor. And it's weak and dishonorable to knock little old ladies over. So you don't do it. Now note how this approach is totally self-regarding. You're thinking entirely of yourself and how this would make you look in the eyes of others. You're thinking of your honor and your reputation. It's all about you. Now, the other reason to not knock down the little old lady and steal her purse is for you to imagine how hard it would be to be mugged and how hard it would be to be the person who depended on the money in her purse for her livelihood and how devastating it would be to be mugged and have all your money stolen and what she must be going through and what she must feel like. And you start to say to yourself, well, if I mug her, what will happen to her? And what will happen to the people who depend on her? And so you don't do it. But do you realize what's happened? That's an entirely other-regarding ethic. It's not a self-regarding ethic. You want the best for her. You're, you're thinking of her. An utterly different motivation than in the shame and honor-based culture. So then, then the professor would ask the class, how many of you would take the purse? And no one would. And then he would ask, why not? Which of these two thought processes, the two, these two trains of thought, is yours. And the entire class, including his most secular and anti-religious students, all said the second train of thought, which focuses on how it would affect the little old lady. And he said, you've been changed by Christianity, whether you know it or not. Because the origin of that idea, the very idea you put the other person ahead of yourself, rather than thinking of yourself first, comes from the gospel and the teaching of Yeshua and the overhead. And the professor goes on to say this. 
and then we quote, we know that the Anglo-Saxons, the Anglo-Saxons and all the shame cultures, when they first heard the gospel message, were incredulous, were unwilling and unable to believe because they couldn't see how any society could survive or how any person could survive that didn't fear and respect strength. So when the European society did convert to Christianity, uh, they were far from consistent. They merged and mingled uh, the, the new gospel-centered view of reality with their older pagan one. And that's the reason why European Christianity preached the Crusades, for example, because they believed that losing Jerusalem was an affront to the honor of God and to their own honor. That's the reason why they let the monks and the women and the serfs do charity and cultivate charitable virtues, because that wasn't for men of honor and action. In other words, the history of Anglo-European Christianity is to a great degree a merger and commingling of the gospel's view of reality and the kingdom of this world. In other words, we're all kind of like Peter whose knee-jerk reaction was to pull out the sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. We're all like that. We say we're on Yeshua's side. Oh, we're for the kingdom of God, we say. But when it comes right down to it, we're, st we're still operating, at least in part, in our old man, our old carnal nature. And so conforming our behavior to the kingdom of God doesn't feel right to us. We merge and mingle the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of this world says the sword is on top. Money, power, success, recognition. That's, what, that, that's what's really real. And we all too often give in to this. We commingle the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And the next thing you know, what are we doing? We're supposed to be on, on Yeshua's side, but out comes the sword. We're exactly like Peter. Now, of course, it's hard to live and to walk in the kingdom of God. Uh, the world says it's masochistic. The world says this whole idea that you prize and you value poverty and weakness and suffering and, and rejection. What's up with that? Who can live like that? And the answer is we don't understand what Yeshua is saying. When we say the kingdom of God prizes and values weakness and poverty and suffering and rejection, first of all, it means this. That when we see weak and poor and suffering and rejected people, we value them. We prize them. Uh, they're precious to us. And we, do, we don't just throw a few, a few bucks in the tzedakah box, but we go to them. We lay ourselves out for them. And we do what we can to help them. We don't disdain them like the kingdom of this world does. And we're not indifferent to them, but we lay ourselves out for them. That's number one. Number two, secondly, if you lay yourselves out for people who are rejected, people who are weak, people who are poor, people who are weeping, that will come into your life and affect you. Listen, you cannot get involved with an emotionally hurting person without it to some extent draining you emotionally. You can't get involved with someone who's falling apart financially if you're really involved without it somewhat draining you financially. You can't get involved with someone who's marginalized, whose reputation is ruined, without it to some degree hurting your reputation. In other words, the kingdom of God prizes the people who are in these conditions, and the people in the kingdom of God are willing to go to some degree and share those conditions in order to help minister to them. And here's why, and this is key. 
because the things at the top of the kingdom of this world, power, money, success, recognition, don't control us anymore. A person who understands what Yeshua has done for him, what has done for her, it frees you. It, it changes the way you look at these things. They don't control you anymore. So for example, here's a person in the kingdom of this world, and here's, an, here's a person in the kingdom of God, and they both have great jobs, but they suddenly realize they're about to lose their jobs. And they'll probably never get back up to that same socioeconomic status again. They'll be down three or four notches. And that'll be the way they live the rest of their lives. Now, if you're in the kingdom of this world, here's how you know you are. Because this is like the end. It's the end of your life. Because your job and your status and your income is your very identity. And you're a slave to these things. Your identity is based on your status and recognition and money and power. It's your identity. It's what makes you real. It's what's really real in your life. So you're not going to be real. So what are you going to do? You'll do anything to keep your job. You'll lie. You'll cheat. You'll stab someone in the back. You'll do anything. But if you're in the kingdom of God, here's what you know. You know this is not going to be easy. It's, going, it's not going to be pleasant. But one of the things you know about the kingdom of God is that when weakness uh, and, and poverty and suffering and rejection are near, the kingdom of God is near. Yeshua says in 2 Corinthians 12.9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. This is the time when you grow the most. It's the time in which you come to grips with your real treasure. It's the time in which you come to grips with your real identity. And therefore, you prize not the poverty and the weakness and the suffering and the rejection per se, but you prize what these things will work into your life. So now you have a place for these things, uh, and they won't destroy you. In the, kingdom of, in the kingdom of this world, there's no place for these things. If those things come into my life, and I'm living in the kingdom of this world, my life is over. But a Yeshua follower is free. Free to take or leave money, power, recognition, status. Why? If you're trying to save yourself, if you're trying to earn your own salvation, though you probably won't call it that, if you're trying to earn uh, your own self-esteem, if you're trying to prove yourself, you're going to either hate or love money too much. You're going to either hate or love power too much. You see, there are some people who say, oh, I don't like money, I don't like power, and I don't like people who have it. And you don't want anything to do with it. You hate it, you stay away from it, because this is what makes you feel noble. Because you're basically a self-saver. And then there are other people who need the money, who need the status. Why? Same reason. You're also a self-saver. You hate each other, but you're basically doing the same thing. But if you know you're a sinner, saved by sheer grace, you can take it or leave it. Uh, you're free. Uh, if the money comes or the power comes, you've got lots you can do with it for the kingdom of God. But if it's gone or if it starts to go, you also know that's one of the ways in which God's grace is going to work more deeply in your life. In other words, the sword is gone from your life. The compulsion is gone from your life. You work hard, 
but you don't have to work to have an identity and a self-worth because your identity and your self-worth is in Messiah Yeshua. And so your work doesn't drive you into the ground. And so even when setbacks or disappointments occur by the world standards, you're going to remain incredibly at peace. And those things will not rob your joy. The world is not going to understand you. They're going to say, how can you give your money away like that? How can you refuse to, to compromise uh, and thereby, by, thereby lose that job promotion? How can you help that person who will probably take advantage of you? And a believer says, I don't care. I'm free. And I'm not going to, purpose, I'm not going to purposely be foolish, but, it, but it's not the end of the world if someone takes advantage of me. It's not the end of the world if I give my money away. It's not the end of the world if my career doesn't take off. It's no longer my life. It no longer controls me because I'm following the way of Messiah Yeshua. Uh, and real influence and real treasure and real power comes when you put the influence and the treasure and the interests of other people ahead of yours. When you reverse places with them. When you put them first and you second. That's the way Yeshua has changed this world. It's already changed. As you saw in the classroom thought experiment, Yeshua has already profoundly changed this world, even though he's still yet to return and fully establish his kingdom on this earth. But as Peter shows us, it's hard to fully live out the values of Yeshua's kingdom. So on the overhead, that leads us to our last question. Number three, how do we get the power to live in this messianic kingdom? Where do you get the power to live like that? Well, at the very end of our passage, it speaks to this issue. And we're told this in Mark uh, 14, verse 50. Then everyone deserted him and fled. And then we're told about a young man who was a follower of Yeshua, Mark uh, 14, 51. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Yeshua. Uh, when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This young man was so intent on saving his skin, he was so cowardly, that when they grabbed hold of him, he was willing to run away naked through the streets. Now, nakedness in the Bible is a sign of shame and disgrace. And that's appropriate, because this man's a coward. Uh, and, and therefore, the shame of running home naked was perfectly appropriate. Now, why is this story here in the Gospel? There's a very old tradition that this guy is Mark himself, the writer of the Gospel. He would have been a young man at the time, and he's saying, I was there, and I was as bad as everyone else. You see, everyone failed him, both Judas and Peter, both the insiders and the outsiders, the violent people and the nonviolent, uh, the religious people and the irreligious. Everyone failed him. Romans 3, verse 10, as it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. The scholar N.T. Wright, in his commentary on Mark, in front of the overhead, uh, he says this. Uh, this actually may not be on the overhead. <laughs> that by having this young man flee naked from, from the garden, Mark is trying to remind us about another garden. You see, in the Garden of Eden, there were people who were also given a test, and they failed. And they were stripped naked, and they fled in shame. And now here we are, centuries later, and there's a garden, and there's a test, and everybody's failing. Everybody is failing. Uh, and they're stripped naked. Or at least one of them is stripped naked. Uh, and they're leaving in shame. But wait a minute. Something is different. 
in the middle of this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a man who's passing the test. And it's an incredible test because they were all, all because why were all these other people fleeing? Why was everyone else failing and fleeing? They were afraid of the world's sword. They're afraid of the sword. They're afraid of being arrested. They're afraid of being killed. They're afraid of the world's sword. But Yeshua is standing firm. And he's facing something far worse than the world's sword. When Adam and Eve fled naked from the garden, just covered with fig leaves, they turned around and they realized that, that there was something at the door keeping them from ever going back. A sword. A cherubim, a cherubim, had a sword, a flaming sword. Genesis 3.24. After the Lord God drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The flaming sword guarding the entrance to the Garden of Eden was flashing back and forth. No one could get back into the presence of God without going under that sword. What was that sword? It's the divine justice. Our sins separate us from God. There's no way back into the presence of God unless someone takes that sword of divine justice on the overhead. We were in that garden of Gethsemane, uh, just facing the little sword of this world, of the world, and we ran. Yeshua was in that garden, facing the ultimate sword of divine justice, and he stood firm for you, for me. And here's the secret. If you see Yeshua just reversing places with others, you see him healing the leper, caring for the poor. If you just see him reversing places with others, forgiving his enemies, you'll say, I can't do that on the overhead. And you're right, you can't. Because Yeshua as an example will crush you. But Yeshua as a substitute will save you. If you see Yeshua as an example, reversing places with others, You'll never live up to that. But if you see Yeshua reversing places with you, with you in the garden, that will save you. You see, everybody else in the garden is going free, even though they've disobeyed. And he's being seized, even though he obeys. He shifted places with us. He's getting what we deserve so that we can get what he deserves. And when you see that this great reversal uh, uh, is, uh, is you and him, not just him and, and other people. If you see that he gave up all of his cosmic wealth and came into your poverty so that you could be spiritually rich. If you see he gave up the name above every name and came into your anonymity, uh, your namelessness, so that you could get God's name put on you. If you see this, you're going to look at your own reputation differently. You look at your, at your reputation and you'll say, this is not my ultimate identity. And so you hold it loose. You won't be enslaved to what the world says. You won't be petrified if someone thinks ill of you. And you look at your money differently. When you realize Yeshua took on your poverty so that you might become rich in Him, you won't be tied to your money through your identity and your security so you can be generous with others in need. You'll be able to look at your bank account and say, this is not my real treasure. And it changes the way you look at your money. It changes the way you look at your, at your reputation. It changes the way you look at your time. You become spenders for others 
joyfully, happily, cheerfully spending yourself on other people. And the world, the world will think you're crazy. You're crazy to put your, your reputation, your career, your money, your time at risk to help others. But for you, you count it all joy. For you are now living in the upside-down kingdom of God. You're no longer living in the kingdom of this world, and therefore you no longer have the sword hanging over your head. Karl Marx said that religion is the opiate of the people. The opiate of the people, he said, is believing in another world. According to him, if you don't believe that this is the only world, then you're not going to make it a good place. And he's absolutely wrong. Totally wrong. In fact, the exact opposite is true. Because if this world is the only one I get, if this money is the only money I get, if this wealth is the only wealth I get, if this reputation is the only reputation I get, and to stand for justice means I'm going to have to lose my money, lose my reputation, lose my life, I'm not going to do it. Because this is all I've got. That's it. But what if I have a reputation beyond this one? And a wealth beyond this world's wealth? And a life beyond this one? And I'm asked to risk or even lose this world's reputation or wealth or life in the name of justice to help others. I can do it. And in Daniel 5, Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, is, is having this wild, decadent, drunken party, an orgy. But he doesn't know that God has judged him and that the medial Persian army is marching on his capital and that very night would sack the city and kill him. But at the moment, he's having fun. He's partying. He's in the middle of a party, and in the middle of the party, a giant hand appears and starts writing on the wall. And it basically says, your days are numbered. By the way, this is where we get the famous phrase from the handwriting on the wall. Hear me well. If you're living for yourself, spending all your money on yourself, living for your career, living for celebrity and recognition, and if Yeshua has really come to earth and he's given up his name and he's given up his life and died for you and he rose from the dead, you may be having a wonderful party, but your kingdom is crumbling. The days of that kingdom are numbered. You're having a great party, but the handwriting is on the wall and your days are numbered. Get into the kingdom of God. I don't mean just having a personal relationship with the Lord Yeshua, which of course is essential. But I also think, but also think about what he says. Think about what living in his kingdom means. A whole new order of things. A new administration. New kingdom values and priorities. And live in that new order, which is the place of freedom and the favor of God. Amen. Let's stand and pray. I'll have the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Father, we thank you that these warring orders, these warring kingdoms uh, are temporary. This war is not going to go on forever. We know that eventually the kingdoms of this world will crumble. As we read in Revelation eleven fifteen. 15, the kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. We know that you, Yeshua, have served notice and declare that in your messianic kingdom, the way up is down, and the first shall be last, 
and the last shall be first. And the way to wealth is to give up, give everything away. And the way, to, way to, for power is to serve. And the greatest among you shall be the servant of us all. This is the way of your kingdom, Yeshua, which the world does not know. Show us, Yeshua, how to live and walk in your footsteps. Not simply by seeing you as an example, but by seeing you as our substitute, our Savior. Melt our hearts today with this truth. Change our lives with this revelation. And dwell uh, in our spirits, Lord, uh, your spirit, with the power of, of your new life. For we pray this all in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.